Welcome to VI Beat, produced by VancouverIslandFreeDaily.com, providing islanders with news from home and around the world. This is Philip Wolf, editor of the VI Free Daily and the PQB News, along with publisher Peter McCulley. And today we're thrilled to be joined by Terry David Mulligan, a name familiar to generations of Canadian radio, TV, and movie fans, a legendary DJ, VJ, producer, and actor. He continues to be hard at work, hosting a pair of weekly radio shows among his many ongoing projects, and he now lives in beautiful Nanus Bay. Terry, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for letting me know where I am. Sometimes I forget. <laughs> You've been awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Leos, inducted into the BC Entertainment Hall of Fame, and named Broadcaster of the Year by the BC Association of Broadcasters. But you started your radio career after being a member of the RCMP. I, I sense there's a story there. It's a long story. Actually, there's a book out there with most of the story in it. However, um, I was uh, I grew up in the North Vancouver Skunk Hollow, which is just uh, in and around Cell Avenue and Marine in North Vancouver. The locals called it Skunk Hollow. You know you're talking to a North Vancouver, a local, when they know what Skunk Hollow is. Anyway, my father was the game warden. But the great game wardens gig in all of British Columbia was Kamloops. That was like Yankee Stadium for game wardens. So we left North Vancouver at the age of, uh, well, grade eight, actually, and uh, ended up in North Kamloops, uh, graduated uh, North Cam High. We're still meeting. As a matter of fact, uh, today we're having our, our an, another Zoom meeting. There's still enough of us around. And I had to get out of Kamloops. I just did. I was very comfortable with the RCMP because uh, my father worked with them. And my sister was dating one, and uh, I and I wanted to be a Mountie. I, I, I thought it was a very honorable profession. Still do much. Still think it's one of the great training grounds in all of Canada. And um, I spent four years in the RCMP, and I ended up in uh, Red Deer, Olds and Red Deer, Alberta. And uh, just about then, the British invasion started. And for those who were there at the time and were aware of rock and roll and listening to it, it was astonishing what was going on on AM radio. FM wasn't around then. It was two, two and a half minutes, three minute singles of a new British band. Every day there was a new band coming out of England. It was incredible. And they were led, of course, by the Beatles, who at, at times completely owned the top 10. And I was attracted by that. Uh, uh, so much so that I made friends with Hal Weaver, who was the local radio announcer in at CERD in Red Deer, who ended up in Edmonton and then Toronto. He was a great announcer. He was never meant to be in Red Deer. And, um, and he said, uh, you obviously like this. I said, well, I do. I know my music. I was a music major in school. He said, why don't you come and do a demo? So I did a demo. For some bizarre reason, they liked it and they offered me a job. Now, I was still a Mountie. I, I purchased. What you do is if you don't do your five years, they want five years of service from you so they can pay off their, their bills. You you give them some money back and you hand in your uniform and away you go. Uh, there's, a, there's a stink of shame about it, just a whiff of shame. They build that in. Anyway, I phoned my father and said, um, Dad, I'm, I'm going to leave the RCMP. To do what? I'm going to be a disc jockey, Dad. <laughs> And, and he, hung, he hung up the phone and didn't talk to me for a year, uh, for a long time, actually. He, he thought I'd made a horrible decision. Anyway, I ended up going through uh, 
Red Deer, then Calgary, then Regina, and finally Red Robinson hired me back in Vancouver in the summer of 1967. And that's when I got home. I finally got home to the West Coast and really started my radio career with CFON, CKLG, and I started uh, what became CFOX, and then CBC, and then uh, CBC Television, and then Much Music, and, and here I am. Your program Mulligan Stew on CKUA in Edmonton has been running for like 25 years now. Can you talk a little bit about the show and uh, what attracted you to that particular radio station? Oh, hell yes. Um, uh, it's, we're going into year 26 now. What happened was um, I was hosting and producing Much West out of Vancouver for Much Music, the nation's music station. And I got very rarely did I ever get a call from Moses Neimer, who was the boss. He was the Ted Turner of our network. Um, and that was a good thing. That was uh, actually one of the keys to my uh, longevity at the Much Music was to stay out of his way. Uh, and he said, uh, we made a, a pitch for a, a television network in Alberta, and we were supported by CKUA. Uh, I'd like to thank them. And I realized as I was heading for CKUA in Edmonton that this was the station that I fell in love with when I was a Maori in Alberta. I loved this. This station was, this station was crazy, crazy musically. I mean, you would hear and have heard Fred Astaire uh, play back-to-back with Led Zeppelin. Like, that kind of weird, what-am-I-listening-to kind of listening to kind of station. Donor supported. In a couple of years, we're going to celebrate our 100th year of life as a radio network. That's how long they've been around being donor supported. Anyway, I got to the station. I spent the day there, did the interviews, and listened, to, and I really had my ears open. And as I, and I, as I, as I was leaving, I said to them, this is how I hear radio in my head. I can't find myself in current radio situations. I'm just not going to do it. I just don't like it. But this is what radio should be. Uh, if we can figure out how I can get my show to you, would you consider taking on a show? Well, what would you do? Well, I'd, I play, uh, you know, rock and roll. No, we don't play rock. No, but it's not, it's not what you think rock and roll is. It's just pop music, but it's the best of it, the really good stuff. And so they, I demoed it, and they liked it. And so 26 years later, I'm still doing the show. I just sent it off today. And, and I, I love what I do. In the 26 years, I have never been asked, why did I play that? What, what are you going to play next? Week? I don't know what I'm going to play. When I sit down, I know what the first record is. And while the first record is playing, I pick the second one, and then in the two and a half, three minutes that it's going, I pick the third one, and then, and so that's what it is. It literally is a made-up show as we go, but I'm really good at the making up part, and I'm good at, I know my music, and I know how to get out of the way and let the music, I don't think there's, frankly, there's another radio show that I know of with a profile like this, where I will play upwards of 20 minutes of music without saying a word. Nobody does that anymore. And I love it. And they, they encourage me. Well, no, let's put it this way. They haven't discouraged me. So uh, I think I'm, I'm on track there. So that's what attracted me was a creative freedom to be able to speak into this microphone and do anything I wanted to do, play anything I wanted to play within reason and, and make it fly, make it work. What's happened is we, we, every six months, we would try to raise some words of 500,000, 600,000, 650, or God forbid, $750,000, which we have done because the costs keep going up. But finally, we had to really bite the bullet and we went for our first ever million-dollar 
a donor uh, pledge uh, drive that happened in uh, November of last year. The feedback that we got from the audience was astonishing. It, we realized that we were keeping many people sane, that we were the voice in the room that kept them from being lonely, that, and we played tunes that gave them hope during the pandemic when everybody was scared. We didn't know what we were dealing with. We just knew it was dark and deadly. They pitched a million bucks. We raised our first ever million dollars. So uh, all of that combined, that's why I'm at their station, because I love it. Is there music today that you especially like? Um, <laughs> jazz. I love jazz. I'm a jazz fan. I'm a jazz hound. I used to play trumpet, my, myself and my brother. I thought I was going to be a trumpet player for the rest of my life. But I, I love jazz, and, and I love blues and roots and rhythm and blues. That's where I live. I live in the groove. If, if it's Otis Redding singing These Arms of Mine, that's okay. That's exactly what I'm living for. I try to mix up my music. Let me give an example. This will answer your question. Uh, this is Saturday's show. Michael Bloomfield, uh, uh, along with uh, Al Cooper. Al Cooper's the guy that, that recorded and played all of the keyboards for Dylan on Like a Rolling Stone. Bahamas, Ricky V. Jones, B.B. King with um, Van Morrison, back-to-back with B.B. King and Eric Clapton, Dave Matthews Band, Led Zeppelin, Joan Baez, Roy Head, The Beatles, uh, Chris Cornell, uh, Paul McCartney, The Stones, Lou Reed, uh, Coco Love Alcorn, Holland, Bob Dylan, The Staple Singers with the band, Leroy Stagger. That's kind of like the first little bit. So it's all over the place. Your interviews have been a virtual who's who of the music business over the years. Pete Townsend, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Paul McCartney, Neil Young. Could you single out one or two as some of your favorite or most interesting interviews? Well, uh, let me answer the most interesting. Um, there was nobody more interesting than Frank Zappa. Frank Zappa was the best interview in, in all of radio, but you could not ask him lame questions. You absolutely had to engage him, or he would just stand up and walk out. Really? <laughs> and that's because he had the mind of a mathematician. As a result, he had... Uh, a short attention span. You had to engage him right from the get-go, right from the first verb. You had to engage him. And we, we became fast friends. And Janis Joplin. The thing about Janis and what people didn't know was that as good as she was on stage, she was nervous in front of a microphone being interviewed. And in order to calm her nerves, she brought with her a, a bottle of bourbon or Jack Daniels or whatever, something of that ilk. But she insisted that you drink with her. If the interview happened usually around 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it would start to fall apart about 10 to 12 <laughs> minutes in because I couldn't hold my booze. I, I was not a drinker, and she was. And she would laugh her butt off at how goofy I would get, and, and then the interview would fall apart, and that was the end of it. But we did half a dozen interviews, and we also became friends. Did you have any other wild or off-the-rails moments? I did for 15 years. I hosted, uh, co-hosted a show, produced a show called Movie Television for City TV. I did a lot of set visits where you watched the shooting of the movie, but you had more time with the stars in between the shots. Robin Williams was the best interview on the planet, period. What journalists uh, tried to do with him was try to out-one-line him. And you will never, you would never out-one-line Robin Williams, because he was on another planet. And so you walked in with uh, setups, uh, softball uh, questions that he could hit out of the park, <laughs> and just suggestions for ideas. 
It just because I had spent um, five years doing beer commercials for Molson Golden Ale a long time ago. And I was working with, I had a group of actors around me. At the time, they decided to just go into Second City and hire most of the cast of Second City. So I was working with John Candy and Bill Rudder and Dan Aykroyd and Martin Short and all of those guys, all of them. And that's when I knew what comedy was about, because that's what I did. And so Robin Williams was the epitome of that sort of plea form, uh, live in the moment, speak in the moment, become the character in the moment. Robin Williams was the very best. It was about, I mean, uh, in terms of really bad interviews, Kiss was a bad interview because they had their own agenda. You could line up, you could have six strong uh, questions ready to go, but they didn't care. They were going to talk into the microphone, whatever they wanted to talk into the microphone, no matter what you asked. So I learned a lesson there. Just hand the microphone off <laughs> and make sure it's recorded. So Terry, BC actor Jason Priestley has been a good friend of yours for quite some time now. And I know you co-hosted a TV show with him, Hollywood and Vines. And now you've, right. you've, you've now parlayed that into a weekly podcast dedicated to wine and food. Maybe you could tell us how that all began. Uh, we were in a fishing tournament, uh, probably uh, in Haida Gwaii, somewhere up that way. Uh, and we were in a boat together. We, we, were, we knew each other because uh, we, in the early days of acting in Vancouver, it was a small community. We would all see each other in the hallways. We were made to sit outside in 10 to 20 chairs, this long list of people, the same faces. Uh, if the script called for a, a, a good-looking young 21-year-old son, Jason would be there. If, the, if there was a role there for his dad, I would be there as well. I'd be giggle about that. But anyway, we were out there doing a charity event, and we were fishing, and we had lots of time. We had the whole day to talk about it. And all Jason talked about was wine. And I said, imagine if we did a wine show, you and I, a rock and roll wine show. I have been telling him that I get knocks on the door and it opened it up and there's the FedEx with a box of uh, albums for me. Uh, because if labels wanted you to play their music, you had to get it in your hands and they would deliver these, uh, these promo albums, three albums uh, to the front door. And he said, do you, do you get those all the time? I said, yeah, all the time. He said, imagine if we did a wine show. We get free wine delivered to our doors. <laughs> and, and that's how it all got started. It took us a while to get it going. But, but that's how it all, it took us seven years to see three years of, of Hollywood and Vines. We still talk about it. Somewhere down the way, Jason and I would like to find a winemaker who will let us mess around with the, their red blends and come up with a blend. Sooner than later, I think, frankly, even 2021, if we could do it. Do you have any advice for people who like wine and want to expand their knowledge? The cool thing about wine is that if you want to do your testing and your research, you have to taste the wine. And you can do it with friends when you could sit around a table with friends. And uh, maybe you bring out a rosé. Maybe it's something like a Clos de Soleil, which is a darker red than we're used to. It's like, looks like it might have been made in Tavelle, France. So everybody pours, and everybody tastes, and then you make your notes, and then you try a, a, a Pinot Noir, uh, and maybe you try a Merlot. And then, you, and then at the end of that, you, everybody exchanges their notes, what did you like? What did you didn't like? Uh, what did you taste? What did you smell? Uh, and, and you could and you make it an exercise. It doesn't have to be this sort of sit there drinking a bottle of wine. Just have a taste. Sip. Actually, have a spit bucket. Because if you're doing this uh, midday, 
you're going to be asleep by two o'clock in the afternoon. Just a little, have a cup beside you and just spit into it, taste it, uh, make your notes. That's one of the ways to do it. More importantly, there's lots of websites out there that will give you advice. One of them is the Wine Diva, Dana Van Mulligan. And she makes lists up uh, of the top 50 wines under $20. She's tasted a thousand wines to make that, that list of 50. And she has made her notes during the course of a year. And then you get to look. <laughs> you, it's like it's all in front of you. First of all, it's wine under 20 bucks. She's tasted it. She's found it great. She's had choices of thousands of bottles. And those are the 50 wines. Go and just print it up. Print it up and keep it handy. Keep it in your pocket. Keep it in your bag. You don't have to do this alone. Um, and just enjoy. And, and, and listen, forget about the uh, – until they change the listings in this province, forget about box wines. The Australians make great wine and put it in boxes, but we haven't, we haven't embraced that yet. It's just crap wine. I've got a show called Tasting Room Radio, and that's all we talk about is how to just make wine more approachable. So what was more fun, a wine tasting event or an interview with Janis Joplin? Janis Joplin. Listen, some of the wine tasting is fantastic. We did one in this uh, uh, over the computer on Zoom with um, Taylor Fladgate, who make incredible port, distributed to the world. And they had sent me some port, and we were tasting here. They were tasting in Portugal. The same thing happened with an Australian winery. They sent their wines, and, and I tasted on camera. And we, uh, I love that. That was kind of cool. They were one day earlier than me talking to all of us. I think there were maybe 15 or 20 people on, on camera. I love that. And I, I do love wine tasting and all the wine dinners, but uh, I also like sharing wine with friends. Simple as that. I, I, I have neighbors. I have neighbors. When I get a wine that I know they're going to love, I just sneak up on them, put a leaf on the porch and say, I know there's only half a bottle, but it's really good. Check this out. <laughs> Terry, you, you sound like a real renaissance man. D- define that. How do, how do I qualify? You love the film. You love the wine. You love the food and, uh, and the music, of course. Just going back a little bit in your career, you've worked in the television industry as well as radio, and now you're in podcasting. As Philip mentioned, in the 80s, you were on Good Rockin' Tonight, which is where I became familiar with Terry David Mulligan. Much music, much West. Uh, You piggybacked that into acting with shows like The X-Files and movies like The X-Men that were produced in Vancouver. I was really surprised to find out that you have more than 75 acting credits, including one of my favorite movies, Mystery Alaska. So do you have a favorite role out of those 75? Um, I, I love Mystery Alaska, and it's still an undiscovered gem. It really is. It got ripped apart. Uh, actually, what happened with Mystery Alaska is the the studio screwed it up. They got cold feet after they were handed a hockey film, even though it had Russell Crowe in it. They had no idea how to ho- how to market a hockey film. What they tried to do was create a film that was had some hockey, and it was more about the life in the town in Alaska and all that stuff. If uh, the director wants to go back and recut that, I want to go see that recut because there was some really good acting going on in that. And I love the storyline, and I think it should be either redone or recut. Um, thank, thank you for picking that up. Uh, I've got an audition today uh, really? for Netflix. Yeah. As soon as I hang up, I'm going to go uh, learn the lines, and I'm going to shoot it. I'll send the uh, footage to uh, my agent, uh, Jamie Levitt in L.L.A., and she will submit me for this role. And 
who knows? Maybe I get another one. You just never know. It's it's always better if you can walk into the room, but I'm nowhere near the movie business right now, so you have to do it on um, with your with your phone or your iPad or your laptop. And I'm still doing it. I still like uh, learning lines and getting it done. You've been doing this for a long time. What keeps you interested in the entertainment industry? Well, the friends I have in it, the friends I've made along, I like the challenge of keeping up. In other words, it, it engages you if you wish it to. You can walk away from it. It's very easy to do. Uh, and I suppose that uh, you could you include radio in that because radio is entertainment. Uh, although I have had raging arguments with them, some people at CK Way because they started as a, an information, a, a learning radio principal at the University of Alberta, but then it expanded from that many years ago, like 90 years ago. And, and as I keep reminding people, we're in the entertainment business. When you're on radio or podcasting, you're, you're there to inform and entertain. If you can do both, it's really good. What would you say has been the biggest change over the years? Uh, well, the technology. I mean, look at us. You know, we, we can we can all be on camera. We can see each other as we're talking. The way that uh, that uh, information travels. Once this is done, you can take that file. You can send it literally anywhere in the world. You can post it anywhere in the world, and it's a matter of record now. In other words, here's the deal. I did six interviews with Janis Joplin. Six. I have no tape of those interviews. Nothing. It's only my memory. And I have one shot of myself with Janice so that when people know it, they know oh, you didn't meet Janice. Yeah, I did. Here's a shot. Here's a Janice. I learned a late lesson. Hold on to the tapes. Hold on to the recordings. And so in answer to your question, what's changed is everything is capable now of being kept and archived. And there's a record so that years from now, uh, people can listen to what we did. As a matter of fact, people are going to study the last four years, uh, given the political climate and given the fact that we all have gone through and are still going through a pandemic. They'll go back. They'll write books about this period of time. And maybe uh, 30, 40 years from now, they'll be, well, what was it like being in the pandemic? Uh, literally, each one of us has a story to tell, and it's just a matter of capturing it. Well, Terry, uh, you mentioned uh, memories and that's a segue for your autobiography, which uh, was co-written by Glenn Schaefer called Mulligan Stew. So the book covers your life from growing up in North Van to the present day. Any fun tales from your youth you'd like to uh, share with us today? Uh, there was a time. <laughs> My father was a game one. There was a time when, uh, usually when hunting and fishing season started, that I was going to school with the same kids that he was busting. It was not a good time <laughs> because I would be pinned into a corner by two or three of the of the guys who the old man took my gun. I want my BB gun back. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember that well. And I was I had great hiding spots. I never took the same road home twice because there were always gangs in North Van looking for you. They they wanted their BB guns, they wanted their fishing poles back. There, that's another thing about I'd like to go back and, and redo that book again because there's lots of it that didn't get in there. Lots, like lots and lots. And I I'm, I am seriously thinking that when I slow down, 
I'd like to take that book and reconstruct it, deconstruct it, and put it back together again with the stories that I wanted to put there in there in the first place. Uh, God bless the editors. That's what their job is to is to look stand back, um, having really no uh, involvement in the book, and try and trying to make it readable. I loved the book as it came out, but there was much, much, much more to that story than that. And it was a great exercise for me to. Uh, a couple of things. One was. I realized that I had been just an a-hole when I was uh, riding the crest of the wave. And I went back and apologized to as many people as possible at the kind of person that I had been. And I learned a lesson in writing that book that you are responsible for who you are, no matter what the year is. And that, that's the big lesson I learned from that book was I took a look at myself and went, you what a dork. So I, I, got that, I got that out of my system. Maybe a second book will help even more. What would the title be if you reworked it? Same? <laughs> I don't know. Titles, you know, you, they don't just fall out of trees. You, you kind of walk a title for maybe a, a, about five miles thinking about, no, that won't work. No, that won't work. <laughs> now, you have grandchildren now. Have, have any of them uh, seen any of your old TV and movie appearances? And if so, what was their reaction? They haven't told me that they have. I, I have no idea. If they have, as a matter of fact, my kids, my own poor kids, I would have to drag them kicking and screaming to listen to anything that I'm doing. They're not interested. <laughs> they had to deal with being my kids. They had to deal with being, uh, I was their, their father, when they were going to school and they were ragged unmercifully. And so uh, their reaction to that was to listen to nothing, be interested in nothing that I was doing. And uh, it's a running gag in the family. It's, kind of, it, it's a humbling experience to talk about. Although, I'm now, uh, when I'm doing my show on CKUA, it runs five to seven in Alberta. So four to six, it runs in British Columbia. I'll phone my daughter, Kate, and say, tell Finley that uh, Buffy, that's what she calls me, uh, Buffy's on the radio. And she'll turn on the radio and listen to Buffy uh, on the Saturday afternoon. So I have at least one fan on the island. It sounds like you don't have a lot of downtime, Terry, but I have heard reports of you rowing around Nanus Bay to relax. I love that. Well, relax and fish if I can. Uh, the, the, the actual rowing is the exercise, getting out there. Because as you well know, once you get on the water, your perspective completely changes. Your house is just one of many. You're looking back at it, and, and your neighbors are going by, and uh, there's, there's sea life out there. And my father was a game warden, so I spent a lot of time in rowboats with my dad. And I'm very comfortable in that rowboat. I love being out there. And I intend, once this, all, this run to whatever the finish line is gets finished, I intend to fish my butt off on the, in that boat. Uh, either, either up in the interior, up in the lake country, the lakes on the Vancouver Island, or out up in front of the house. Do you have a secret fishing spot on the island? What I tell you? <laughs> well, that was the point. Yeah. Why would I tell you? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and finally, Terry, any advice for aspiring broadcasters or actors out there today? Well, find a day job and be good at it. And try to not make it being a, a, a waiter in a restaurant because that's not doing well right now. And here's the deal. Find yourself a day job that you can count on, that, that you feel comfortable with, and learn how to take rejection. Because I was rejected from 1,076 uh, jobs. You have to learn how to take the rejection, not take it personally, 
some of the roles, if you get them, would change your life completely. And you know it. You know it going in. If I get this gig, I'm in. I'm in the club. If you don't get it, you have to learn to deal with your failures, learn from it, and then move on. So that's the first thing I would say. And do your homework. Know yourself. Actually, the more life you live, the better you can be as an actor. I'm always astonished when I see actors who are 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, and they're acting like they're 30 and 35 and 40. I don't know how that works. <laughs> but if you go back and look at their family makeup, they were probably given the creative freedom to be anybody they wanted to uh, during the Christmas pageant or the or in the kitchen or they played music together as a family. They're encouraged to to find that person within them. It's a very special part of your life. You have to kind of open yourself up like a songwriter. Terry, this was just fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us today. That's this edition of VIB, produced by VancouverIslandFreeDaily.com. If you have suggestions for topics or guests, we would like to hear from you. You'll find our contact information on our website, VancouverIslandFreeDaily.com.